It is such a pleasure to welcome Rebecca, uh, one of my professors at Oxford, to talk about her book, her meandering career, and an article that really made me rethink sulking protests and everything else in between. Welcome to Network Capital, Rebecca. Thrilled to have you here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So uh, congratulations, first of all. Your new book is coming out. Uh, tell us a bit about it. Yeah, um, so it's about swearing. Um, it's uh, an underexplored topic in philosophy, so it's a, a philosophical treatment of it. Um, I'm interested in exploring um, where swear words get their power to shock us, because they sort of often do, um, and also exploring the norms around swearing. So um, we, I think most of us have the view that we ought not to swear, at least in certain contexts. But sort of exploring what's what sort of ought are we talking about? You know, is it a, is it ever a moral ought? You know, in the sense that we ought not to steal or we ought not to murder people, um, or is it something more um, sort of etiquette related? Like you know, we ought not to swear in the sense that we ought to be polite generally. Um, yeah, and I think it's a little bit of both. And um, I'm also I was also interested in exploring what we do and we censor swearing. So, you know, if you see swear words in print with the asterisks replacing some of the letters, which is quite common, um, we all know which word is being used. But somehow that, you know, replacing some of the letters makes it less offensive. So I was interested to explore that as well. So, yeah, it's a, it's a fun topic. And Stephen Fry wrote something remarkable about it. How do you know Stephen, and uh, how did you how did he get to read the book? What were his comments like? Um, I unfortunately don't know him. Um, so my my editor at Oxford University Press was um, thinking about who to ask for some endorsements, and, and asked me if I had any thoughts. And I said, well, Stephen Fry would be the dream. Um, you know, he's sort of been vocal for a long time about being a fan of swearing. Um, so yeah, my, my editor got in touch with his people and uh, he, he sort of initially agreed to read it without any promise of writing anything. And I thought, well, that's kind of cool already that he's gonna, he's gonna take a look at my work. Yeah, and then he came through with the sort of kind comment. So I was really pleased. Well, congrats for that. We're going to host you to discuss that book separately. But uh, on Network Capital, our mission is to really democratize how people think about their careers. And you've had a particularly interesting one. Uh, do you want to talk uh, to us a bit about your failures, your failure resume, which I found the most fascinating thing in your uh, website? Yes, I, I'm glad you found that. Yes. So I've got a section of my website devoted to my lowlights, um, which was inspired by the philosopher Ray Langton. Um, and I, I saw that she'd written that on her website. And I thought, well, this is really important because I think especially for people who are trying to get a job in academia or, or you know, trying to succeed in general, um, they only see people's successes. You know, they're sort of comparing themselves to people who have made it in some sense and maybe sort of feeling like a failure themselves, you know, because we compare our insides to other people's outsides, as the saying sometimes goes. So it was really a way of just trying to make it more visible, you know, how how much people 
have to go through rejection and setbacks before they see any sort of success, really. Um, so yeah, and I've had <laughs> I've had quite a few. In fact, that the, the website where I put that um, list of, of my failures is is quite about out of date. I haven't updated it for a while, so I've probably got a few more to add uh, <laughs> when I finally get around to it. But it's so cool that you do it. And the more I read philosophy, the more I realize how much it has common uh, commonalities with entrepreneurship and venture capital. So the new hot thing in the VC world and the entrepreneurship world is to talk more openly about failures. And a lot of entrepreneurs mm -hmm. have now started doing the same because um, there's pressure to almost appear perfect and appear as somebody who's figured everything out. So I found your failure resume and that of a leading venture capitalist to be very similar. In fact, even career choices are similar <laughs> um, from uh, you know sometimes not getting the grades that you wanted, sometimes not having to take up a university because of lack of funding, um, but sort of being entrepreneurial about your career. That's something that I found really remarkable. Do you want to walk us through some of the more challenging moments in your academic career, especially ones that perhaps less left you disillusioned and what made you come mm. back? Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's a great way to frame it. I think um, I suppose one one thing that comes to mind, which has occurred to me sort of several times over the course of my life, is uh, I think we are often encouraged to think of our lives as a sort of trajectory of just climbing to ever higher successes. Um, which makes it really hard if that's not the way it works. You know, if, it, if it's not just a process of improving on what you've done before, um, I think it can be hard if you find yourself, you know, as, as I did in my 30s, sort of with nothing and sort of looking around you and thinking, oh my God, what a failure. All these people that I know are just sort of happily continuing on with their lives and enjoying more and more success. And yet here I am, I've sort of taken... 10 steps back for, you know, the five I've taken forward in my life. So I think, um, I think this is important. And I, I'm glad to hear you say that, uh, that you think this is sort of becoming more of a, a thing in business as well, just sort of being open about failures. Um, because I think it's something that's, you know, of course, if you're, if you're somebody looking for a secure job, you can't really afford to do this, you need to yeah put your best foot forward so I think it's it's up to people who have more secure positions to be open and transparent and sort of you know show show what their story has looked like um so yeah I um I in a sense have a fairly linear career as a philosopher um I I left school and immediately went to study philosophy um and that's what I've been doing since, in, in, you know, in the academic sense. Um, but it's been broken up a few times. So initially, I, I wasn't sure I was going to get into university because I didn't get the, the grades that I was supposed to get. Um, but that was kind of a minor setback. That was sort of a, a couple of days of worry. And then, you know, it, it was all fine. They, they let me in. Um, so, yes, I did my, my undergraduate degree at Leeds and and then a master's there in philosophy and then I was uh, planning to go to Oxford to do a DPhil well to do the um the BPhil and then the DPhil that's what they require so so the BPhil is their version of the master's and right 
and then you would go on to do the DPhil, the, the doctorate. Um, but I, I didn't get funding. Um, so I had applied for, you know, this is a sort of common path for people wanting to do a, do a PhD, apply, apply to a, a funding organization to provide uh, payment for the fees and also, you know, money to live on. Uh, I, I couldn't, there was no way I could afford to do that myself. Um, so yes, I didn't get it. And I think that was that the first really major setback as I saw it. You know, I'd sort of gone through my my time at Leeds, you know, getting good marks, good feedback, and so on, and sort of thinking, I'm pretty good at this. And then, you know, sort of get brought down to earth when um, when I realised it things weren't going to continue the way I'd hoped. Um, so yeah, I, I spent a year just sort of doing odd jobs around the university, you know, sort of things like a few weeks at a time getting paid to help various staff members sort out their paperwork because it was literally paperwork in those days. Yeah. Um, invigilating exams, th this sort of thing. Um, and, then, and then had to reapply to do the PhD because... I really wanted to do it and and sort of sat down and thought like an adult about it, which I don't think I'd done the first time round. Mm. Um, so I changed the the focus of what I wanted to research. And because of that, I ended up applying to Cambridge rather than Oxford. Um, and, and this time I got the funding. So hooray. <laughs> but um, I, I also hadn't read the terms of my funding properly. So, so the maximum amount they would give you in those days is four years of funding. So that was sort of one year to do the masters, which you, you had to do in order to be allowed to continue to do the PhD. And then three years for the PhD. Um, and I'd already used a year of that for my masters at Leeds. So when I went to Cambridge, I only had three years left and they wanted me to do their masters. So they sort of required, wow. they were sort of, um, you know, it doesn't matter if you've got a master's from anywhere else, you have to do our one. Um, so I did that, that used up another year of funding. And, and so I had two years of funding left to do my PhD and, and stupidly changed the topic. So I what I should have done is just continued to work on what I'd been working on for my masters there, but I didn't um I completely changed the topic just through I think boredom and also just this failure to realize that uh of course I was going to be bored after a year of working quite stressfully on a particular topic I wanted you know the honeymoon period that comes from diving into a new area of research and you know sort of having fun with it um so I so I ended up sort of doing Embarking on a new topic, having to do the PhD in two years, which was a really stressed, rushed experience. Not a breeze, not a breeze for sure. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's, um, I think, I think it, so the, the, my PhD thesis certainly could have done with an extra year of work on it. Um, but I, I did pass it, thankfully, um, because by the time it was examined, I was working full time. I couldn't really have afforded to spend much more time on it um yeah but but due to how stressful that was i i fell out of love with academia a little bit um you know the initial plan had been to do the phd and and then get an academic job 
which wasn't a particularly well thought out plan. It was, you know, as I've come to realize, this is a way that a lot of academics start on academic careers. You know, they don't sort of early on make a conscious decision to do that. They just sort of keep doing the next thing and then the next thing. And they just sort of get funneled into this sort of academic production line and sort of, hey, I'm I'm an academic. And that's that's sort of what was what was happening with me. Um, but I decided I would um, dump that and get a job in something completely different. So I think I was, again, chasing this sort of honeymoon feeling of starting something new and not having made any mistakes yet. Um, so I went and worked in IT. Um, I worked at IBM for a few years and 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 really hated it. Uh, and Wait, I don't think tell us, I mean, that has to be something, a philosopher in IT. Uh, that, yeah, uh, that has um, to be something. I, I, I don't, I'm not sure they really knew what to do with me um, because I, you know, I sort of just, I just entered in the sort of graduate scheme um, and I just wasn't in any respect, you know, computery or sort of good at IT or anything like that. Um, and, and I just really wasn't very suited for, you know, sort of corporate environment um I, I i i've never really worked as part of a team um i work i work alone you know that that's just sort of i've come to realize it's very antisocial these days to sort of say that you are you know you're somebody who sort of works best in um in solitude uh, but i think that's basically me um even so that, today sorry even today yeah i mean i i really enjoy uh, connecting with people and discussing ideas uh, but but ultimately I, I I work best if it's on my own projects mm. you know sort of if it's uh, an article I'm writing on my own or a book I'm writing on my own um, I, I don't really sort of thrive very well in team environments yeah um, which is not because I hate people <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, I really I really enjoy sort of discussing with people I just don't have that that uh, that muscle that helps me thrive in in um, in sort of teamwork environments and whereas you know that that was sort of very much the way it was set up when, when I was at IBM um yeah I used to work I, at Microsoft like without teamwork it can get really tricky right yes I mean I could see I could see that um and yeah, it was it was quite hard I mean if, if I, I'm sure that some of the coders and the sort of more technical people probably, uh, spend a bit of time working alone but unfortunately I just wasn't qualified to to do that sort of thing um, but yeah so, so I was a bit of a square peg in a round hole um, and I stayed there for a few years until they offered a voluntary redundancy scheme and then I sort of thought well I, I want to leave I, I sort of realized really early on that this wasn't for me um, so I thought well I may as well leave while they're offering to pay me for leaving right makes sense um so yeah and and sort of i suppose one positive thing that came out of that whole time is i had um i'd really thought hard about what i wanted to do you know what which direction i wanted my career to go in um and i think it really did um serve me well you know i think um i think one thing that academics don't realize if, if they've only worked in academia is that lots of people don't like their jobs you know they they do the job because they're paid to do it and then they go home and they sort of you know whatever they find fulfilling or enjoyable they do 
you know, off the clock in their own time. Yeah. Um, but academics, although we do lots of things that we don't enjoy, we still spend large amounts of time of our professional lives doing what we're interested in, you know, researching what we're interested in doing. And, and that's, that's an immense privilege, I think. Um, but it's something I hadn't, I hadn't really connected with until I was working in a different environment. Um, so yeah, I left, I left IBM and I spent a sort of nine months, I think, unemployed, applying for jobs and just, you know, sort of spending the whole time basically kind of working in a kind of nine to five way, but without being paid, but just sort of working on um, brushing up my academic CV, uh, you know, because I had this gap, this sort of gap in my academic career. Uh, so sort of publishing articles, uh, writing, you know, doing things that I thought would make me look good. Um, and yeah, eventually I got my break. I got a, a, a postdoc position at Oxford. Um, so yeah, that's where I ended up next. I was working in the Future of Humanity Institute, which is Nick Bostrom's research institute in Oxford. I think I was their first employee. It's, it's quite big now. Um, so did you work with Nick often on Yeah, on Yeah, so it was just, it was just me and him for, at first. Uh, and then, you know, it, it grew sort of while I, while I was still there. Um, but yeah, I, I, got, I got what I wanted. You know, I was sort of spent, I spent a lot of time feeling, oh God, you know, I've, I've, I've really slipped through the net. I've missed my chance. That's it for me. I'm on the scrap heap. Um, and, and then I was back in academia and I sort of couldn't believe my luck, but it also, I mean, that had a sting in the tail because I just, I had writer's block, like really awful writer's block for months. Um, I, I sort of just started out with this sense of, oh God, they've, they've really made a mistake employing me. I need to, I need to write something interesting to, you know, to, to prove to them that I was a good choice. And that just had the effect of, I just, I literally had no ideas. I couldn't think of what to write about. And I think, you know, in retrospect, it was just sort of massive anxiety that I was sort of really putting pressure on myself. But, but for a long time, I couldn't, I just couldn't think of a single interesting thought. <laughs> so, and so that made it worse, you know, sort of then I was even more of a terrible choice. Um, and yeah, over time, I think that eased. And actually, you know, having said that I work best alone, that, that was probably eased by um, writing, uh, working on things with other people. So sort of co-authoring uh, papers with other people. And, 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 you know, sort of it could, because it made a big difference just having other people say, oh, that, that's an interesting thought, Rebecca, or, you know, I like what you're thinking about here. You know, just getting a bit of positive feedback. Um, so yeah, that was uh, that was my first academic break professionally. You made it right, like after many ups and downs, um, well, somewhat temporarily. Part. Yeah, <laughs> temporarily. It, yeah, for, for a moment I made it. Um, yeah, I mean, a, a, a hugely positive thing there, I think, was that it was um, what I was researching while I was there, which was um, I mean, it's quite a range of things they work on, but I was uh, working on. Uh, the ethics of human enhancement um, which was a, a real departure from what I'd written my PhD on. Um, I, I hadn't really written 
in ethics before. Um, and, and that was, I think, a massive blessing. Um, and I'm really grateful that, that things turned out that way because I think, because I'm sort of, you know, I have a tendency to be a bit lazy. I think what I might have done if I just had free reign to work on whatever I like is just to sort of continue with the momentum I'd started with my PhD, you know, sort of explore various angles of what came out of that. You know, sort of anyone who writes a PhD know, knows that um, you kind of, you end up with more unanswered questions in a way than answered ones. So, so there was plenty of scope to sort of continue in that vein, but that wasn't what I was being paid to do. So I had to sort of get into another area, um, which was great. You know, I sort of ended up um, just sort of, I don't, I don't even think I'd be working on the stuff I'm working on now if I hadn't had that push to, you know, sort of work on new things. Um, so yeah, I was there for three years and, there, and I left when I was pregnant with my first child. Um, and then they, you know, I left when I had maternity leave and, and sort of my contract was at an end anyway. Um, so I ended up um, out of academia and having another child eventually. Uh, and, and that was, you know, this was a really difficult period. It was the sort of um, the relationship I was in broke down. Um, it was a, a, an abusive situation. Um, and and I sort of ended up in this situation um, thinking I'm you know I'm living kind of in poverty with my children and and nobody's coming to rescue me you know the the only way that we're going to get out of this situation is if I get us out and then just sort of looking around myself and thinking oh god I've got two children under the age of two <laughs> how's anyone supposed to even get dressed let alone you know, sort of work up their academic CV. Um, but, you know, it did, it, it was, it, it, there was a period of basically spending every waking moment working on philosophy, you know, sort of, again, sort of like I'd done before, trying to sort of show that I was active as a researcher, um, that some of the contacts I'd made at Oxford really helped me out you know I ended up getting uh, eventually another postdoc position in a different institute it wasn't the future of humanity institute it was um, the the Oxford Centre for Neuroethics uh, which is part of the Uhiro Centre um, so yeah I, I, I went back to Oxford um, different environment because you know I'd had children and I was in this kind of situation where I was um I would I was still with their father at that point but it was it, it wasn't the sort of ideal situation um and then after about a year of being there I got the job that I got now at Royal Holloway which was basically a, a permanent job um so it was a bit more security for me because you know I was the only um the only earner so so yeah, and, and, and there I still am. Um, you know that the relationship I was in ended, and it's it's just me and my children. Um, we're still living in Oxfordshire, and I'm still at Royal Holloway, but that's kind of basically it. There, there's no, there's been no more sort of serious um, plot twists in my career since then. But thank you uh, for sharing this. I know um, you know it takes a lot of courage to talk about it on 
such a public platform. And thank you for being so resilient. I think your children are blessed to have you as a parent who's gone thank through you. so many yeah, ups and downs and with such grace. So thanks again, Rebecca, we really appreciate this. Uh, I'm sure people, not just academics listening to it will take a lot of inspiration from the hustle that you've gone through. Yeah, hustle is a good word for it. Did you sulk during this torturous <laughs> period? Um, yeah, I, I've been asked this a lot since I, uh, you know, since I started working on sulking, which is which is only fairly recently, really. Um, so I certainly sulked in that relationship and the ones that I had previous to that. Um, and I think, you know, sort of there's there's been it's gone hand in hand with sort of various unhealthy dynamics in relationships, you know, not ones that I'd want to repeat. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, I think what often happens um, is that people who aren't generally sulky sometimes sulk in their romantic relationships, which was a case with me. Um, you know, you have these sort of norms that we obey in our interactions with others, but, but then we sort of have our intimate relationships with our romantic partners and, and sometimes with other family members as well. And it's like there's different rules apply. Um, you know, there's sort of some topics that, uh, that people just won't discuss with their partners or, or they don't approach issues in a, in, a, in a certain way because that's just not how things have done. So, so yeah, I think I was a bit of a sulker. Um, there was a bit of a dynamic of me being a kind of a dependent partner. So, so I, I mean, so, so in some ways I was, I was kind of pushed into that position. Um, but, you know, sort of someone who wasn't really making the big decisions um and so you know sulking was something that i would do <laughs> sort of i'm going to be asking you a whole bunch of questions about sulking because i found your lecture so fascinating but let's okay. start with the fundamentals um mm. what is sulking and uh why should we care yeah okay excuse me i've got a cold drink and a hot drink here so you know i can never give up my tea even when it's <laughs> roasting hot outside um Yes, yeah, so I think sulking is, um, I mean, I, I suppose the, the, the most obvious description of it is that it's a form of withdrawal. Um, I think that's what springs to mind for most of us when we think of sulking. You know, we think of somebody refusing to speak or refusing to engage in their usual way. Um, but of course we can withdraw without sulking. You know, sometimes we might just want some time alone or, or, or we might want to nap or something. You know, there, there's, there's all sorts of reasons why you might want to withdraw from interaction with other people without sulking. So, so then the question is, well, what, what is it about sulking that, um, that turns withdraw, you know, what's special about sulking? So it involves withdrawal, but what else does it need to involve? And I think there's a couple of things. I think one is that there's, there's a directedness about it. So we sulk, there's a target of a sulk, you know, there's something, there's somebody we're sulking at or to or, or with. Um, so typically somebody that we're upset with. So we sulk when we're upset about something. Um, and, and the withdrawal is intended to be inconvenient for that person. So we, we sulk with people who want to engage with us. So typically people that we're close to, you know, people that want us to talk to them and who are going to be stressed by our refusal to talk to them. 
Um, so we, we want to punish them in some way. We need it to be inconvenient for them. So I think that's part of it. It's, it's you know, it's withdrawal, but there's this element of punishment that's directed at another person. And I think there's also a, a communicative aspect of it, which, which might sound strange because one of the features of sulking is that it's a withdrawal of communication. Um, but although it's a withdrawal of verbal communication or, or you know, normal communication, you know, whatever normal is in, that, in the relationship in question, um, the withdrawal itself is a type of communication, I think. So, you know, if you have somebody close to you who's sulking with you, although they're not talking to you, there's something that they're communicating to you via their act of withdrawal. So, you know, you immediately know that they're upset with you, um, that perhaps you need to do something to bring this withdrawal to an end. Um, and I think that part of it is a really rich aspect to it. You know, there's, there's, there's all sorts of things that we can communicate wordlessly. Um, and there's also lots that we can't commu communicate wordlessly. You know, I think we're often um, frustrated with people who sulk because you know, we kind of want to know what the problem is. And if they just tell us, then we could solve it quickly rather than you know spend hours trying to guess what the issue is. So there's lots that's not communicated, but then there's a lot that that is communicated just by somebody's refusing to speak to you. So that's the that's the essence of sulking, I think. It's it's withdrawal with a sort of punishment element aimed at a particular person and this element of communication, wordless communication. And I think you know if you if you were to express in words what that wordless communication is saying it would be something like I'm angry with you and I need you to put this problem right you know this problem that I'm not going to tell you about but you need to guess what the problem is and then you need to put it right so so that's kind of what's being communicated in the sulk. Would you say that uh, your interest in the subject arose from your work in philosophy or were you how did you come to pay attention to this very mm. interesting phenomenon? Yeah, it, so it actually arose through the, the work that I was doing on swearing. Um, so obviously, it's often the case when we swear, we are communicating inappropriately. You know, there's plenty of times when you can swear and it's not inappropriate, but a lot of the time it's rude. So we're communicating something offensive to another person. Uh, which breaks all sorts of norms. So, you know, the norms of politeness usually, but in some cases it might break. You know, if you're if you're swearing on live TV, then you're also going to be breaking broadcasting rules as well. So that you know, there's sort of various, various rules that you could be breaking. Um, and and for that reason, sometimes we don't swear even when we feel like it. You know, we hold our tongues because we don't want to, we don't want to be seen to be breaking the rules. But I think at other times we do want to communicate what's offensive, but we still don't want to break the rules. And so we get clever about how we communicate this inappropriate thing. Um, and, and some of that can involve things like, you know, what I, what I described right at the beginning. So when swear words are represented in news stories, for example, with asterisks replacing some of the letters, you know, that's a way of communicating an offensive word in provided that certain conditions are met an inoffensive manner. Right. Um, but I think that we do that in lots of more complicated ways as well. Um, and I think sulking falls under this umbrella. 
that by sulking, we communicate something that were we to say it explicitly, we might be challenged about it. So perhaps you're sulking because, um, uh, because your partner can't see you at the weekend, even though they have a very good reason. Let's say they've, you know, they've had this commitment for months and it's, you know, it's a sort of perfectly respectable commitment. They're not neglecting you, but still you're upset about it. And so you sulk about it. I mean, if you were to communicate your resentment explicitly, you would have to say something like, I want us to spend time together at the weekend, but you're going away. You're doing this other thing instead. And if you were to say that explicitly, then your partner might reasonably say, well, you know, um, we can spend time together next weekend. You know, you've, you've known for a long time about this commitment. It's I'm not doing anything wrong by uh, doing whatever it is and so on. So, you know, if we were to communicate explicitly what we communicate wordlessly with sulking, we might be challenged about it. So I think when we sulk, we do that. Well, one reason we might sulk is in order to get around that, that we worry about being challenged about what we're feeling angry or resentful about. So we just sulk about it. So if we're not expressing it, we can't be challenged. Um, and I, I think there's, there's other behaviors that fall in this category as well. So things like passive aggression, you know, when we sort of convey anger to people in a way that's deniable uh, yeah. so you know sort of by using ambiguous behavior um and also you know sort of looking on a more sort of happy, the silent treatment yep. the silent treatment exactly um but you know these are all quite negative behaviors uh and, and i think we don't always we're not always limited to negative behaviors in this respect so sometimes there might be positive reasons why we might want to not be explicit and direct um so that could just be for politeness so we might um if somebody asks us what do you think of this outfit i'm wearing and we don't think it's very flattering then it would be very rude to say you look awful but maybe instead we might say well, how about this other what about that thing you wore the other day that looked great or you know something along these lines so the person we're talking to kind of gets the message that we don't like what they're wearing, but we've done that indirectly and without explicitly say, you know, saying really sort of directly what we think. So I think that's a way of saying, you know, conveying content which could be offensive in an indirect and therefore more benign way. So, you know, I don't think the, uh, the this general dynamic of saying in an ambiguous and indirect way something that we don't want to say directly is necessarily objectionable in general but i think in sulking it it often is objectionable yeah it's 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 fascinating uh, my mum is a, a literature professor at the university in delhi and one of her poems talks about women and you know linguistic aspects of sulking so in hindi a version is, is called root jana and she was basically connected in with Rus Jana and how women sort of travel in their minds. And she was connected in with Russia, which is also called Rus, nothing to do with the contemporary politics uh, going on. But try to connect the dots for me about what does gender and sulking, if at all, have to do with each other? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I found this quotation from the, the Scottish philosopher, David Hume, um, while I was 
looking into sulking. Um, and I'd seen it before, it's quite a famous quotation, but it's but sort of uh, my interest in sulking caused me to view it in a new light, where he says something along the lines of, uh, in society, men have more power than women, but women can use their charms and insinuation to get their own way. So, you know, women don't have the, the power to make big decisions themselves, basically, but they can influence men in various ways to get what they, to get what they want, to get the men to pull the levers of power in the way that, that the women want. Um, and I think that captures a really important dynamic here. So he's saying, you know, for, for somebody who lacks the power to get their own needs met, they can employ various strategies to have other kind of manipulate other people into meeting their needs. And that might apply to various groups, you know, if there's sort of all sorts of disenfranchised groups in society, not just women. But so for anyone who lacks the power to just, you know, make big decisions about how their own life goes, they might be able to kind of use more, um, more subtle means to to have their needs met. So I think, you know, to, to sort of address your question about gender, I mean, there, there is this sort of long history of sort of women um, not having the, the political power that men have, you know, either through their sort of representation in politics or just not being allowed to vote, but in more domestic settings as well. So, you know, sort of historically, the, the, the husband has been the breadwinner and um, I mean, I'm talking sort of UK, US context here. I did sort of uh, um, more globally, I'm sure that there's sort of different dynamics at play. But, you know, in settings where um, one party has less power than the other, then the, the person with less power is, is likely to find um, methods like sulking more useful. So that could have emerged as... Um, you know, sort of something, sulking being something that we associate with women because they just haven't had more overt means at their disposal for getting their needs met. Yeah, it's uh, it's so true. And I think these dynamics of power for, for the longest time have been true in all, most parts of the world, if not all. And I think mm -hmm. your work, uh, you know, draws attention to that. And, um, you know, in, again, like just back to the language, it'll be interesting to see what does sulking mean in different languages. Hindi, I know, mm. English, I know, but it'll be interesting to see. Perhaps we can you know, do some sort of a study on it. But uh, sulking has been relevant from, uh, you know, from pages in history to contemporary politics. Do you want to tell our listeners a bit about uh, why they should care from a historical lens to why they should care about sulking from what we see on television in the political theater? Well, I suppose, I mean, sulking gets a bad rap. Um, and this was certainly the, the, the view that I initially came to it with, where we think of sulking as sort of childish. Um, I mean, obviously sort of children sulk, because they don't, you know, sort of often because they just don't have the ability to get their needs met. But um, I, I mean, sulk as well. I think of myself you? sort of child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, when we encounter adult sulking, there is, um, you know, we sort of often have this view, this sort of, oh gosh, how undignified of you. You know, surely you should be able to employ some other means to, to get what you need. Um, 
But I think that there's various reasons why someone might, might sulk. I mean, we've talked about the, um, you know, the sort of the, the power that might be at play here. So if you don't have power, then you might uh, you might have to be creative with the means you employ to, to get what you like, which is, you know, that that's sort of a, largely a political issue. Um, but I think also there's uh, there's a range of other reasons. So um, it might be that somebody has has the power to meet their own needs, but for one reason or another is worried that they will be uh, if they were to express their needs explicitly, they might be rejected or invalidated. Um, so this is something that uh, is discussed in one of the very few articles about sulking, academic articles about sulking that I encountered. So an article by a psychotherapist called uh, Katrona Rottersley called Sulking as a Declaration of Dependence. Um, she talks about uh, people perhaps sulking because they're afraid of invalidation. So, you know, sort of basically saying, this is what I need from you. And I guess being laughed at or being sort of told that you're unworthy of having your needs met and so on. And, I, you know, that so that certainly makes sense, I think, uh, at the level of personal personal relationships, you know, so that there's there's all sorts of ways why you know, people mm. in family relationships or romantic relationships uh, might have the experience that their, their their needs and feelings are not recognized in important ways. But I think also politically, you know, there's um, just just th throughout history, there there has been um, sort of many examples of people, sort of certain groups not having their needs appreciated and met. And perhaps, you know, the the um, the services and resources that society provides being structured around a particular type of person with a particular type of background and a particular set of needs. So I guess an obvious example that springs to mind is, you know, the sort of heteronormative conception of the family that uh, has kind of really been dominant. Um, and, you know, only recently, I suppose, in the in the past decade or so, we've seen that being challenged and, you know, sort of progress being made for um, for people to sort of marry in, in sort of non-heterosexual partnerships and so on. Um, but that might be a case where, you know, the needs of um, uh, our, our political framework recognises that sort of heterosexual couples and their families have particular needs. And that might be something that's recognised through just sort of very practical things like education, taxation and so on. But then the needs of sort of other um, less conventional partnerships and family setups is, is not recognised. And, you know, this sort of lack of recognition of one's needs, I think, you know, that this is this is what Katrona Rottersley was talking about. You know, so sort of that might be something that leads us to sulk. So we're just afraid of even expressing our needs if we anticipate that they're going to be rejected. So in a way, it's a form of silencing, I think. And then one response to that silencing might be to sulk, which is a way of trying to get our needs met silently in a way, I guess. <laughs> I think we briefly discussed it in class, but do you think Gandhi was a sulker? 
I was I was fascinated by this by, by your comment about this. Um, I don't know. It's so I don't feel like I know enough about this situation. And I know that there was there was somebody in the class who was sort of disagreeing with your your perspective there. So yeah, I'm looking forward to digging into this. Uh, so so sort of sulking and similar methods of communication I have as my plan for my next book. So I'm I'm definitely <laughs> going to dig into this. But you do, I mean, in your article, which was fascinating, you do talk about the Iliad, even powerful American presidents sulking in different ways. Do you want to yeah. uh, tell our listeners about that? Yes. So, so um, when I was when I was first thinking about this topic, um, I wanted to find some sort of high profile examples of sulking. Um, because, you know, I think that makes it relatable. And, you know, we all have our personal experiences of sulking in our in our own relationships, I guess, whether that's as the sulker or the target of assault. Um, but having examples that we can all relate to, I think, um, can be can be really beneficial as a, a bit of a discussion starter. So I was looking around at where we might find some some high profile sulkers. Um, and this is a really interesting exercise because I think if you are looking around at sort of, you know, sulkers who have made the news or sulkers in literature, um, you are kind of by definition looking at sulkers who are sort of interesting and high profile in some way, um, which kind of really, I think, brings into focus the this concern I expressed about how we how we think it's somehow undignified to sulk. Um, so I think this comes out in, um, it, you, you mentioned the Iliad. I mean, this is a sort of really famous example of sulking where um, I mean, it's right at the start of the Iliad. So if anyone wants to kind of explore this, you don't have to read very far. <laughs> so, um, so Achilles, who is the, the star fighter of the Greeks, um, wins a woman as a trophy, you know, as you kind of did in those days, I guess. Um, and he has his woman confiscated by Agamemnon, the, the Greek king. Um, and Achilles is annoyed about this. And they have this kind of little bickering match where Achilles says that he's, he's going home if, if Agamemnon, you know, pulls rank in this way and steals his woman. Um, and Agamemnon says, oh, well, fine, go home then. You know, it's sort of really very domestic, <laughs> the way that you know, people might bicker um, in a relationship. Um, so Agamemnon goes ahead and confiscates Achilles' woman, and Achilles goes off to sulk in his tent. So it, it's become this saying, you know, to go off and sulk in one's tent. Um, so basically, yes, Achilles withdraws from fighting. So, you know, I mentioned earlier on that sulking um, involves some sort of withdrawal. Um, and, you know, in sort of mundane settings, that's often just refusing to speak. But Achilles had more power at his disposal. You know, he was he was the best fighter. So his withdrawal was not merely the silent treatment. It was his withdrawal from fighting, mm -hmm. um, which had the consequence that the Greeks started losing in the Trojan War. Um, so there was this element, you know, there was this withdrawal. There was also the sort of element of punishment that I mentioned before. So Achilles was sulking at Agamemnon. Um, and so his, his sulk had to involve punishing Agamemnon in a certain way. Mm. So, you know, mm. what better way than causing his entire nation to start losing in, in the war they were fighting. Um, and it was very clear why he was sulking. You know, there was this sort of this communicative element was present as well. Um, and eventually later on, um, Agamemnon returns 
uh, Briseis, the, the woman that he'd confiscated from Achilles. So, you know, he tries to put things right. He tries to bring the salt to an end. Uh, but by that time, it, it was too late. Achilles was refusing to be placated. Um, and eventually Achilles does stop sulking, but only when his best friend, stroke lover, depending on who you read about this, uh, is killed in, in the war. So this is an example of, you know, sort of somebody who's really quite an upstanding, powerful person, nevertheless resorts to a sulk in order to, to try and get what he wants and, and make his feelings clear. And I suppose we also get an insight here into sort of how, how subtle the power dynamics can be, because in one sense, Achilles was powerful, right? He was, um, yeah. he was a top fighter. He wasn't sort of a, a weak, oppressed person. But he lacked power in this particular way. So, you know, sort of relative to Achilles, he lacked power. Hmm. Um, so, so I suppose we could make a case for Achilles being a little bit, um, you know, sort of resorting to sulking from a, a, a perspective of, of powerlessness. Um, yeah, and you also mentioned the sort of um, uh, example from politics. So, so this was a sort of more recent case. Um, Donald Trump's reaction to losing his election to Joe Biden. Um, so, so this was, of course, at the height of the COVID pandemic. Um, and Trump's response to losing was to, to start sort of spouting conspiracy theories about electoral fraud and all the rest of it. Um, and he just withdrew from public life. You know, there's sort of, it, it's interesting to look at the, uh, the journalistic response to this, uh, you know, sort of plenty of journalists accusing him of, re of um, retreating from his duties and sulking. So it really is a classic case of a sulk. Um, he, he was annoyed, um, he, he lost, and he responded to that by withdrawing. And again, he's not merely giving somebody the silent treatment, he's, he's in a position of you know, immense power. So his withdrawal is, sort of basically I'm going to leave you all to fend for yourselves at this time when there's this sort of infection raging through the country people really need leadership but I'm not going to provide it hmm. um, and of course it had this communicative element he was sort of spouting this uh, these um, conspiracy theories which of course turned out to be baseless sort of making very clear why it was that he was upset um, and I think that case is particularly interesting because it it's, um, it illustrates that you can sulk even if you don't have any reason to sulk. Mm. Uh, you know, sort of after, I suppose so far we've talked about people sulking in order to get their needs met or sulking when they have um, reason for resentment or, or reason to be, um, for, to, to object to something. But Trump simply lost the election and didn't like it. So he, he was a sore loser. He hadn't been wronged. Um, he lost fair and square, but you know, that didn't stop him sulking about it. When you wrote this essay and when you started, uh, you know, this body of work, uh, what did you really hope to accomplish? Like what would, what did success look for you, look like for you? Yeah, so, so as I said, I'm, I'm wanting to do a sort of book length exploration of uh, sulking and kind of similar behaviors. Um, but I, I, I don't have a fantastic attention span. 
I have an ADHD diagnosis. Um, so I think, so I contacted Aon, which is where the article was published and offered them an article, basically so that somebody would give me a word limit and a deadline and I could write mm. something shorter. So, you know, I can't remember the exact word limit they gave me. Um, but uh, the, the initial conception of what success would look like here was kind of getting the basic ideas down mm and um, presenting it to people to read so that we, so that I could have a discussion with people, you know, kind of as we're doing now, um, it's interesting to talk to, to people about it and people have sort of got thrown up all sorts of different perspectives. So, so that's, you know, a great benefit of writing, you know, writing a shorter article. Um, and I think I'm, I'm raising as many questions as I'm answering. So I, I mentioned at the, at the end of the article that, um the the ethics here remains to be explored so um i think in some cases uh sulking is okay maybe maybe i'd say it's always frustrating to be the target mm. of a sulk but often it's fairly benign you know it's annoying and maybe it's we would prefer people to approach airing their grievances in a more direct way but you know we maybe wouldn't want to say that somebody who sulks is necessarily doing anything morally wrong it's just a bit annoying uh, but I think in some cases it is morally objectionable so I think Trump's case comes close to that but, you know for consequentialist reasons at least mm. you know he mm. was um kind of, people died as a result of his stepping back from his his leadership duties um but there's also cases where um, this is another thing that's talked about by uh, Katrona Rottersley in her article that sulking can be used as a tool of abuse. So um, in abusive relationships, uh, people and she, she mentions potentially romantic partners or a parent might not be the powerless person in the relationship. You know, they might be the person who gets to make all the big decisions, but they might sulk just in order to terrorize the person they're sulking with so to to keep that person on the back foot and feeling like they've done something wrong um and just you know sort of so they can't relax so they're using it just as a tool to terrorize somebody else uh so i think in that case that's that's ethically objectionable uh but i'm not sure exactly yet where the where the dividing line lies you know what is it that turns a a benign sulk into something that is objectionable right. uh, and i think a lot of the a lot of the a first bit like place, envy malignant right. envy benign envy yes yes i think envy is a, an, another another fascinating topic um yeah i'll and, send and you this is, essay i wrote on this on oh, the yeah, in praise of envy right okay yeah, there's a philosopher, Sarah Protasi, who works on this um, and, and, you know, sort of makes a case for using it as a positive force. But yes, it, 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 and it's also something that can be very destructive. Somebody said, I can't remember who said, you know, envy is the, the only one of the seven deadly sins that isn't yeah. fun. Um, yeah, it isn't fun, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes, I think uh, there is, uh, th there's ground to explore here, which I'm, I'm looking forward to doing. Um, but I think the answer to that question, you know, when is a sulk benign, isn't in any of the obvious places that we'd look. So I think often if, if you ask people why they find sulking objectionable, 
you know, assuming that they do. I think most people do, um, or at least find it objectionable when they're the target. They'll often say things like, um, it's the, the other, the person who's sulking should just say what the matter is. You know, they should do it. They should be open and transparent about what they want. Um, but I think that there's, you know, as I said earlier on, there, there's plenty of cases where not being open and transparent can be desirable, right? You know, whether through politeness or, you know, sort of or tact. Um, there's all sorts of reasons why, why it might be important and even a, a good thing to be um, ambiguous in our communication. Um, and then I think also some, sometimes people say sulking is manipulative, which it is, you know, you're sort of typically trying to get the person you're sulking at to do something, you know, to solve some problem. Uh, but some, I think sometimes that's objectionable, but certainly not all the time. I mean, certainly not in the case of the, the powerless sulkers that we were talking about earlier, who, who might be sulking because they, they can't get they their can't needs really any other way. They can't really talk back at another person more in yeah. a position of power. Sometimes people uh, in tech, they're just sulking just to get themselves warmed up. It's just a matter of uh, chatter before, you know, before stuff gets done. So again, like, you know, your article uh, raises a lot of really interesting um, questions around it. Interestingly, I did not stumble on this article through the course readings. It was okay. one of the most popular articles on a particular day and somebody sent it to me. So I was actually pleasantly surprised to find it as part of the course reading. So oh, this okay. was, that's, yeah, this that's, was uh, that's why it added up, uh, uh, you know, quite wonderfully. So on, I think, 12th to 15th of May, um, uh, this, this company that selects the top five articles of the day sent it, I read it, and then it was part of the course. So clearly, you know, this has a, mass appeal because people relate to you know sulking just mm. the way they, they relate to envy in so many different ways i think it'll be fun as you explore it in the uh, in the form of a book i was uh, wondering just is there anything that i should have asked you about sulking or your career or your body of work that i didn't or any parting words that you'd like to share i think we covered a lot <laughs> i think there's a lot to dig into here yeah. Thank you so Great. much uh, uh, for your time. I thoroughly enjoyed, of course, your class, your writing, and this particular podcast. And uh, I look forward to having you back soon. Thank you. This has been really great. Thanks for having me.